When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Policies exist for one reason and one reason only in that they are there simply to educate the person who's trying to do the right thing. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the special 300th anniversary edition of Compliance into the Weeds. In today's episode, we take up a two-part blog post series that Matt had on an academic paper which suggested that policies are really or relatively unimportant to an overall best practices compliance program. We take a deep dive into the study, take a look at the operationalization of compliance, and consider what the regulators might say to such a bald-faced statement. I know you'll enjoy this special 300th anniversary episode. Before we get started with our podcast, a quick word from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I have a big smile on my face today because Matt and I are recording our 300th episode of Compliance into the weeds. And so we're going to have a special episode today where we're going to take a deep dive into perhaps the most geek compliance topic there is, policies. So Matt, with that introduction, first of all, welcome. Hello, Tom. It is good to be here for our 300th episode. It seems like just yesterday we decided to give this a shot and do it once and see what would happen. And here we are. And here we are. Let's get into policies. I'm not quite sure how you found this study, but you came across a study by five professors at the University of Amsterdam and the University of California. What intrigued you about their report or the study which led to your first blog post on policies? Yeah, sure, Tom. So this was a fascinating little study, and credit where credit is due. I first heard about it when Todd Haw, who is a law professor in Indianapolis, he had posted about it and tagged me saying I thought it might find it interesting, which I did. This was a study, the results of which were published late in October, where five professors basically had the opportunity to run an experiment with a large global technology company based in Europe, we do not know which one, that was adopting its first ever anti-bribery policy. And the professors, <coughs> basically, they carved up about 1,200 volunteer employee participants into four groups to see if the different structure and design of your anti-corruption policy is it a long-form text? Is it a short-form text? Is it a little infographic thing? Would the design of it have any measurable effect on how well they recognized and would refrain from anti-bribery behavior? And they did this by breaking up the groups of 1,200 people into roughly four groups of 300 or so each, including a fourth group which received no policy at all, 
And that is important. And then after they did their various types of policies, the employees got to study it. They took some tests trying to measure their understanding of anti-bribery behavior. And these professors found that actually the design and structure of the policy had no bearing on how well the employees then scored on anti-bribery tests after they studied the policies. And that includes this control group that received no policy training whatsoever. They just took the test. And basically, the professors said the design and structure of the policies didn't really have any measurable effect on how well you learn the policies and weren't any better than not bothering to have a policy and show it to your employees at all. That was the big conclusion of the study. It generated a fair bit of provocative comment when I posted my thing on LinkedIn, but I think that they raised some pretty good points about whether policies are all that useful for what you, the compliance officer, really want, which is to reduce the incidence of corruption behavior. I'll stop there because they have some other thoughts about what does actually has a good impact on how well employees refrain from anti-corruption. But that was their exercise in policy, was the design of policy actually matter? And they concluded that no. So Matt, before we get to the comments of compliance professionals that you were able to garner through various social media postings, did the professors have any hypotheses, perhaps suggestions, or even lessons that a compliance professional might have learned from their findings? They did have a couple of good points. So point number one was their conclusion that policies are not that relevant to educating employees on what anti-corruption behavior looks like, but what does look move the needle, so to speak. That was their other point, that they had concluded that an employee's ability to understand anti-corruption behavior and really to engage in anti-corruption behavior, to avoid corrupt behavior, that depended more on the social norms of the that they had already absorbed about how bribery is or isn't accepted at the business in general. So the more that employees believe bribery was wrong and it was considered to be a shameful thing at their company that people did not do, that was the better indicator that when they were being tested on, I think they had to answer some multiple choice questions. They had to engage in a bribery game. They had to answer some open-ended questions. But the better indicator of whether they would engage in bribery and corruption or not was just their perceptions about how much bribery is or isn't tolerated at their organization. In fact, let me see if I can dig up exactly what the professors wrote here. They said this, people, even when they study a text about the rules, still rely on what they perceive to be the social norms when answering questions about such rules. And from a applied perspective, the study provides reason for doubt about the effectiveness of written policies in training employees in the knowledge of organizational rules. So really, I think what they were getting at is that if your objective is to reduce the incidence of corruption behavior, and that is the objective for ethics and compliance officers and the programs you run, it may well be the case that you should worry less about what the policies actually say and their design and think more about how are we cultivating a control environment and a general social norm and construct about that anti-bribery is just the way we roll. Bribery and corruption are shameful things. We don't do that here. 
that's the key. If you can get that message and that attitude absorbed into the employees' heads, that's when they're going to be better at anti-corruption behavior. doesn't matter how long your policy is or if it's short and sweet or you use infographic or any of that stuff. That's not the key. The key is the overall attitude and the control environment and how much employees absorb that into their head. So, Matt, I thought a long time about your first blog post and your second blog post, which came up or was put up today, talked about mm-hmm. some of the commentary questions and other information that got posted on various social media sites based upon your first blog post. And what struck me, Matt, was of all the comments that you wrote about, I was fairly stunned that no one got it right, period. <laughs> they were all wrong about what policies are. Policies exist for one reason and one reason only in that they are there simply to educate the person who's trying to do the right thing. And you educate them by having a policy. So when they have a question, they can look that up. Now they can call the compliance office and ask the question, but policies are not there to stop people from doing things. And your conclusion near the end of your first post I think is absolutely spot on. And that says, or what you said rather was, it means you need to pay more attention to your control environment. Pay attention to who gets hired. Pay attention to what senior execs are saying about ethical conduct. How middle managers not simply stress good conduct, but are available to receive reports. And how swiftly and certainly employees are disciplined, plus an entire range of internal control. Now, many of the comments from your, in response to your blog post, which you talked about in your second blog post, I found they are ancillary to, or perhaps more charitably, another reason to have policies and procedures. And those could be, number one, it's required under the U.S. sentencing guidelines. So that's certainly a reason. Number two, as part of an overall conduct Uh, You want to have something in writing you can point to if you want to terminate someone. You may want to have a public statement on what you stand for, but those are not the primary reasons. The primary reason, and indeed for me, the only reason is to have something there for the person, the employee, the business development person, or any other person in your corporation who's trying to do the right thing to give them a resource guide as to what is the right thing. And written policies are just simply that. You... In your second post, though, you went on to articulate, I think, the bigger uh, and more important component of policies, which is it's not just the word policies. It's policies and procedures. And procedures is what implements those policies. Through procedures, you can have a series of controls. They can be as simple as a stop and think control, meaning if I sign this expense report, If it's not true and correct, are there consequences all the way through to the control of there's not a business justification to hire this third party as much as I may want to or as much as I may want to use them to create a pot of money to pay a bribe. If I can't articulate a legitimate business justification, then the compliance department or whoever oversees this function is not going to approve it. Once again, I thought you were spot on in the second post where you said it's the procedures that are critical, more critical, because 
the procedures are what implements those controls that are not uh, articulated specifically in policies, but flow from the policies. So I really think that while the authors of the report are correct, it's like Kyle Welch's research. We all intuitively knew that, or we should have intuitively known that. Policies are one thing, but they're a pretty small thing. And it's the control environment. It's the policies. It's the And as you said, it's the middle managers. It's the senior executives. It is what is the overall culture at your company, which is going to determine whether or not the policies written as written are going to be followed. I have a couple of thoughts there, Tom. I do think that probably the big point that these professors have introduced, and we should say that they haven't proven this. They did one study at one company looking at one policy. So we should be aware that this is just a small little snapshot of the greater world. What they have basically said is that I think all compliance officers know you could have a set of great anti-corruption policies. They are fantastic. They are thoughtful. They are succinct. They are in plain language. But if you have a terrible control environment where nobody actually takes the policy seriously, then the policies don't really matter. You still have a terrible anti-corruption problem. These professors are saying the converse is also you could have a great control environment where discipline is always doled out fairly and swiftly and consistently, and the CEO and the middle managers, they talk about the importance, and this is not what we do. Bribery is a terrible way to win. We win on our merits. And if you have that great control environment, the policies don't matter. That's really what they're saying. Why wouldn't they say it? Like, I, we should hope that these professors do more research to quantify this at a larger scale. But I think if it is true that you can have great policies in a bad tone and you have a mess, why wouldn't the converse be true? That you could have a great tone and you have no mess and therefore the policies, they don't actually matter as much. And the policies, you still need them, but you need them mostly to show the regulators, see, we read the sentencing guidelines, we know what they say, we put the policies in. But that's what they are saying. And Tom, you brought up the good point that I think is valid, that when an employee is looking to answer a question, policies do serve a valuable role. I think we could have a little sub-discussion about do you want them to answer the question by sifting through a 19-page text or a one-page infographic? I think both of those are less than ideal as opposed to an interactive policy manual that starts with, what is your question, employee? Let's guide you through it. But all of that presumes that the employee wants to ask, has a question to ask and wants to get an answer about what to do. There's this large population of employees where that's never going to occur to them. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Let me think about it. How would I figure that out? And they'd look to their coworkers. Well, what did these people do? They'd think about, who's the last guy who did this? Did he get fired? I don't want to get fired. I'm not going to do it. And a lot of them, it will not occur to them. Maybe I should look at the policy manual. It would be nice if they would, but I'd venture to guess that for a lot of employees, that's not actually a thought that will crop into their head, no matter how often you train them, no matter how often they've signed the policy manual. They're not going to necessarily think that I should look to the policy as a roadmap. They're going to go with, what does it feel right to, to do here? And if it feels right to commit bribery because everybody does it, then you failed. failed. Your control environment, your compliance program has failed. 
doesn't matter what policies look great. But if they look around and say, what's the right thing to do? The right thing to do is not pay this bribe because, geez, I'd be the only one in the company who's ever done that. I'd be a loser. I'd get fired. Victory. I don't care if your policies are 10 pages or two pages or in Comic Sans font or whatever. And that, I think, is a very good point for compliance officers to ponder because you do have to put together a whole program that has multiple elements. You can't have a complete one without policies, but it doesn't necessarily follow that policies are therefore going to be the most important thing. I don't think they are. I think something like consistent discipline or consistent tone from management or incentive pay and how is it structured so that maybe there are collective bonuses rather than pitting individuals against each other or somehow incentivizing good ethical conduct. And I get it that policies help with those things. You'd need a clear disciplinary policy. You'd need a good compensation policy. But the actual anti-bribery policy that says you should not pay a bribe, I'm not necessarily sure how many employees would rely on that training at the moment. And these professors say that maybe they don't, or maybe if they do, it doesn't make a difference. There is a body of knowledge that shows you can train a lot of people on what policies are, and at the end of it, they still don't know it. And that's not just all employees on general business stuff, like educators still struggle to understand what are the actual education laws and duties that I have. Doctors struggle on what are the duties I have as a medical professional. And it is a known thing that people struggle to absorb organizational rules and the knowledge about those rules, even when they professionally are in that field. And it's more important to get those norms right. That's what these professors are kicking out there onto the football field. And we did have a whole bunch of people commenting and running with that ball here, there, and everywhere. It's been a very interesting discussion. So several years ago, I wrote a book entitled Doing Compliance. And everything that you wrote in both of those two blogs and in our discussions today has reinforced that for me that your compliance program has numerous elements that all must be in place and all must be functioning. Policies are part of that overall program, but it's workflows, it's audit, it's training, it's executive messaging, mm -hmm. it's disciplinary action, it's compensation, it's internal controls. It is a variety of procedures set up, number one, to communicate to people don't do it if they don't already know not to do it. And then two, to try to put guardrails around them to prevent them from being able to create a pot of money or defraud the company and steal money from the company. And then if they do, that hopefully uh, some tripwire will be triggered and there can be an investigation and conduct can be stopped and then the issue remediated before it becomes a legal issue, such as an FCPA violation or fraud, fraud where money is stolen from the company. After thinking about it, as I said, a long time, I don't think the professors have intoned anything that most of us didn't believe in our guts. Nevertheless, they're one of the first to say it. So obviously that generated a lot of controversy. But let me ask you, is, is this the direction that the Department of Justice is going as well? When over a year ago, Lisa Monaco announced we're going to start looking at corporate culture that was immortalized or memorialized rather in the Monaco memo. And that now we have an at least some modicum of assessment by the department, even if they're struggling with how to determine 
corporate culture. And we're moving towards that as these professors have found that it's the social norms or corporate culture that is the key issue or inquiry. So you think that is the big question. How would the Justice Department respond to various ways that you build a compliance program? As I said, you could have a great tone at the top and you could have a very strong culture that frowns on bribery. But if you have no actual policies or you just bought some policies about anti-corruption off the internet and they're all 10 pages long. You know, if you show the Justice Department, we don't really sweat the policies that much, the tone and the culture are what we worry about. I think that is the correct thing to do, but I don't know that federal prosecutors are gonna see it that way. I would love to know what prosecutors would think of something like that. Whereas you could have a really good, strong set of policies. I do think we should circle back to procedures and how important they are. And if you can automate these workflows to choke out the opportunity to engage in corruption, because the procedure just doesn't give that to you. I think that matters a lot. But in theory, are we really just looking to get a bunch of policies to legally cover our ass? And then you get to show the department, see, oh, yeah, we got our policies. And they say, OK, box checked, move on. That isn't really going to work. But if you are in a corporate resolution process and you're looking to have an effective compliance program to get out of the investigation and to announce a DPA or a non-prosecution agreement, I think the best thing to do would be to think long and hard about how to support the corporate culture. But what's the easiest thing to demonstrate is that you have a lot of corporate anti-corruption policies and you have a lot of training modules and you do a lot of tests and you do a lot of audits. And I don't know how the department would respond to those kind of things. It's about what makes a difference is that which I think may be least able to be tangibly demonstrated, but it is what makes a difference. On the other hand, what can you tangibly demonstrate? You could print out a policy manual and drop it on the desk if you wanted, but is that really going to make that much of a difference in reducing misconduct? I don't know. Is it going to show the prosecutors that see what we did? We're working, we're acting, we're listening to the sentencing guidelines. Doesn't that matter? Yeah, it does. And maybe you get you out of a resolution, but then two years later, you have a repeat and now the prosecutors next ones in line are going to say, why did you do all these policies? What good have they done? I could see this being a very difficult process over time to try and square some of the realities here with the mechanics of how we go through corporate resolutions and the Justice Department evaluating a program and giving a DPA and all that stuff. I don't know. The I think that prosecutors will always look to whether policies are in place because they have to under the sentencing yeah. guidelines. They can't un, un, unilaterally change that. That has to be changed as a part of a change in the sentencing guidelines. So that really goes and points to the one of the questions you raise, which is, do are these policies simply to reduce legal liability or are they to encourage more ethical conduct? And I think it falls on the former, that it's re- to reduce legal liability because it's required. And although the DOJ may be trying to move towards mechanisms that encourage more ethical conduct in terms of an overall corporate culture, if they can't use that uh, as a in their sentencing calculations under the sentencing guidelines, as much as they put it in memos and make it a part of the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, it's not going to override the sentencing guidelines. So I think as long as that's there, the regulators are going to look to that. And if the regulators are going to look to that, people like me are going to say, we got to have them. So we're going to have them. 
And if you don't go any further than that by having procedures which implement them and then actually do compliance going forward, then you're going to have a corporate culture which could fall apart in the context of allowing bribery and corruption to occur. And my fear is that we are going to struggle with building those broader social norms and the corporate culture. And then after you get through your first resolution and you have the nice spiffy policies, if the culture stalls, if the culture and the social norms never take flight, then you're going to have a repeat offense and you'll have the repeat offense while you have all those nice spiffy corporate policies from the first time around. And I would say that's going to look even worse because it's going to look like you just invested in a paper program, arguably because that's what you wound up with. But it just underlines, I think, the main point here is the compliance officers and the head of legal and the head of HR and the board and the CEO, they really need to sit down and think of which parts of the compliance program really make the most difference. What can we really leverage to develop a strong culture and inculcate those social norms that good conduct is the way we roll and nobody would ever engage in unethical business practices because those are the elements that you're going to have to invest in the most. You're going to have to talk up the most as to getting the policies. Sure. You can't not have policies, but you could probably get them in a pretty straightforward way and then just have them there for the sake of having them. I would advise do not have them be 19 pages, single spaced and all that. If your policy is more than three or four paragraphs, I would humbly say you've screwed it up. But once you get the policies, just stop with the policies. You have them move on to what really matters, which is thinking about the tone, thinking about the incentive pay, thinking about how we can build our procedures, which you know, arguably could exist entirely separate from what the policies are, or the policies could come after you build up a strong procedure to not allow payment to third parties before it's completed its due diligence or something like that. Think through what are those parts of the compliance program that will have the most effect for the goal you want, which is reducing employees' temptations for unethical conduct and their opportunity to engage in unethical conduct. Matt, I can't think of, frankly, a better way for us to celebrate our 300th anniversary episode by taking an incredibly deep dive into the weeds around policies, procedures, and indeed what is an effective compliance program. Not quite sure where the next 300 episodes will take us, but I can't wait to be on that trip. Me neither, Tom, and I will be there for 300 more. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this special 300th anniversary episode of the award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds. Matt and I have had a ton of fun over this podcast series. I hope you have as well, perhaps learned a little about compliance details and into the weeds. And I hope you'll join Matt and I again as we head on for our next 300 episodes. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank you.